Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 23rd, 2017 at approximately 3pm GMT in the days after the terrorist attack in Barcelona. So if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we were obviously unable to cover them. If you want to find out more about upcoming podcasts or anything else we do here at the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash TERC. There you can find out about information about our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, our Terrorism and Extremism book series with IB Taurus, and so much more. Also, for the most up-to-date information, be sure to follow us on Twitter, at TERCUEL, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Now it's time for today's interview. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Emily Corner of University College London onto today's pod. Emily is a research associate at the Department of Security and Crime Science at UCL. Her doctoral research focused on examining mental disorders and terrorist behaviour. She has published in leading psychology, forensic science, criminology and political science journals. She has worked on research projects funded by DSTL, the European Union and the National Institute of Justice. Prior to her doctoral research, she has worked across step-down, low and medium-secure psychiatric hospitals in both inpatient and outpatient settings. We'll be talking to her about the work that they research that has inspired her, as well as some of her own groundbreaking research. Emily, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. So, Emily, the way that I start all of the interviews uh, is to ask, how did you get involved in this area of research? Um, so it was it was a bit of a fluke, really. Um, so when I worked in the hospitals, I had I had a full intention of moving towards um, uh, completing a forensic psychology doctorate, and um, usually the way you move towards that is to work um, as a psychology assistant within uh, secure units, which is what I did. And then I worked in that unit, the first, the medium secure unit for about six months. And I realized quite quickly that I I didn't want to do that. (laughs) Um, So I, I then thought about doing a master's and I I thought, what what could I do instead that would get me out of uh, working in the field of mental health? Because I was quite sick of it. And I remember I did a, I, I took one lecture in my undergrad degree on terrorism and I, I found it really, really interesting. So I actually applied for the masters at UCL to uh, the Countering Organised Crime and Terrorism Masters, just because it interested me more than anything. And then, when I was in one of the lectures, uh, it was actually Paul Gill that was doing the lecture, and he talked about his research and how that they found a, the mental health prevalence in the lone actor sample. And I went to him after the lecture and said, "Well, that's wrong because." What I know about terrorism, which I said admittedly is very little, is there's, there's, there's a very low prevalence of mental health problems. And he said, well, exactly. He said, so what do you want to do about that? So that's how I, and I did my master's dissertation and then enjoyed it so much that I, I did my PhD that, at the same department. So he said you had the challenge of yeah. to, <laughs> to deal with this question. Yeah. yeah. And so with that, uh, with that background there and with this change in career, was there anything that you took from it, anything that you had learned from your, your previous background that you were able to apply to in your analysis of terrorism? 
Yeah, so what what struck me um, when I started to look at my um, research in my dissertation for my master's was that there was very little information published out there um, specifically about mental health in the more recent studies because obviously previous studies had sort of tried to debunk um, the theory that terrorists have mental health problems and it had all gone very quiet. And then in the research that was um, finding um, evidence of mental health problems within um, a specific type of terrorism, the only question and answer that was asked was, is there a presence? And for me, with my background in psychology and working in the hospitals, it's not a dichotomous question. Um, and obviously different disorders and different symptoms lead to different behaviours. Mm -hmm. So that was what I I took the original data set by, by Paul Gill and I actually added the disorders to that and actually investigated the type of behaviours that different disorders were showing within the terrorist group. So what is this data set that you're talking about? Um, so it's a data set that um, Paul Gill, John Horgan and Paige Decker put together in a uh, in a project that was completed back in 2014. Mm -hmm. And it was um, 119 lone actor terrorists um, active between 1990 and 2014. Um, the data set's now been expanded up until the present day and there's more variables have been added over time. But that was the data set that Paul allowed me to use for my master's dissertation. And it was actually... Um, the results of the initial analysis that he that was completed by him and his team were actually what went towards the bombing alone paper. Yeah, so the bombing alone paper that uh, Paul Gill, John Horgan, and Paige Decker mm. did. This is this is the first publication using this data set, and since then it's been developed by yourself, by Paul, and by others, uh, expanded out mm. there. And um, so, what did this data set? So this is put down as one of the pieces that it, that influ has influenced your career. And we can see this when we talk about your own research, how yeah. this research um, continues to influence your career. Um, you talk about uh, there about how it was a dichotomous variable mm. in relation to mental health. Uh, what way, first of all, why did you feel that this needed to be changed um, and what way did you go about uh, changing this, including what kind of data uh, were you looking at? Okay, so I think, as I said to Paul when I, I spoke to him originally about the, the data, I said, well, mental health problems aren't dichotomous. And he said, yes, I know, but we've not expanded on it, purely because when we put that question out there, it was just a question within the data set and we didn't realise what we were going to find. Mm -hmm within the results. So I I followed the same um, coding procedures that they'd followed in their original project in that they were gathering um, open source information from, um, well, mainly from the LexisNexis uh, data archive, but also um, um, affidavits, any court documents that were readily accessible, um, other information that you can get through libraries, things. So any basically open source information that was relevant to each of the each of the loan actor cases, and then I used that to discern not only the presence of mental health problems, but what were these mental health problems that were described. Um, 
And obviously, as the case with lots of open source information, it's about being very stringent in how you in how you gather the data. And this was particularly true with mental health problems because in the cases, in the loan answer cases where there was, you know, information about them, quite often there was a bit of confusion over what the problems were. And it and this confusion mainly came down to the sources that were citing what the what the diagnosis was. So um I then had to go back and and perform almost like quality control procedures in order to get the most reliable answers for that. Um, and that was what I added to that data set in that first instance was not only diagnosis, but when the individual was diagnosed, because that's important for knowing at what point is the diagnosis relevant to possibly their behavior. Um, and then I also took a took the the qualitative answers of what the diagnosis was and then coded that into binary coding to sort of be, be able to perform the analysis that I, that I did for my master's. And this analysis that you you went, you took part in the expansion of, uh, of these variables, mm. uh, this led to the paper of false dichotomy, uh, mental illness and lone actor terrorism published in 2014 in Law and Human Behaviour. And this paper, uh, published alongside uh, with Paul as your co-author that goes into the results of this. So what did you what did you find? Um, what did you find from this? So there, there were two um, approaches I took to the paper. And the first approach was to um, perform a comparison with group actor terrorists, because going back to the first question I ever had for Paul was, well, I didn't expect there to be a difference because the literature is consistently said there's no presence in group actor terrorists so one of the hypotheses in the paper was is there something fundamentally different about lone actor terrorists from group actor terrorists and this is why there's a high prevalence of mental health problems so the first analysis is um just a very basic comparison between lone and group actor terrorists and it was it it, it showed that um in the databases that i'd used um lone actor terrorists were over 13 times more likely to suffer from mental health problems and then the second strand of analysis um, focused solely on the loan, loan actor data. And um, I basically compared the mentally ill and non-mentally ill loan actors to see the different types of behaviours um, that these individuals were showing. And then I broke what mental illness was down into different subcategories of disorders to see were there specific disorders that were showing different types of behaviours. And what kind of disorders um, were were appearing? Um, so, so the most so the disorder groups that I could break down and actually had some sort of reliable data on because of the the, the sample size, um, schizophrenia, um, and associated disorders, and then uh, depressive disorders, um, anxiety disorders, and then autism spectrum disorders and learning disabilities, mm-hmm. um, and. Within the sample, um, individuals with schizophrenia were more likely to have a history of violence. Um, Individuals who um, suffered from uh, autism spectrum disorders and learning disabilities were more likely to have had troubled childhoods in terms of parental care. And um, they showed obsessive behaviors such as internet usage and stockpiling weapons. And a strange result that came out for the, those with um, anxiety disorders was they were the group who 
we're more likely to have a spouse who's involved in terrorism. Mm. Um, and I also, the, the final analysis I performed that piece was looking at comorbid comorbidity of disorders to see did the number of disorders an individual have affect the different types of behaviours, but there wasn't. It, it showed some... Um, some differences, but it wasn't significant. The sample size was just not big enough when you group everyone together for that. And were these results that was coming out from this analysis, was this similar to what you would have expected from an ordinary um, forensic population, an ordinary criminal population, or was there something different in this group than what you would have seen in your previous career? So... In, in ways, it, it was quite similar. Some of the results that concerned the specific disorder groups, they were very, they were, on it. for me, they were unexpected because it's what has been found before. Um, the, the, the difference came was when you didn't look at specific disorders, you just looked at the mentally ill and non-mentally ill. And that was more surprising in terms of, there were, there's an assumption um, with people who have quite, acute mental health problems that their rationality is sort of inhibited by the mental health problem but this didn't seem to um, translate across into the results from from the paper because individuals with mental health problems were more likely to more likely to actually conduct quite um, comprehensive planning behaviors actually get to the end point and, and commit an attack um, even though there was quite high levels of psychotic disorders within the sample um, and also the levels of psychotic disorders were much higher than would have been expected anyway. And do you feel then that when you look at something like this and you look at the previous literature that had gone before, um, that in the previous literature there was just this assumption, well if there was a mental disorder uh, present therefore rationality wasn't present at the same time so they both go hand in hand but when you've got this specificity and when you go into so much more detail you can actually find out that it's not the case all the time. Like Yeah and that was that's something that I I always come back to is the 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 assumption of irrationality mm -hmm. um and it, it's something that is, when there is a terrorist attack and an individual is found to have a mental health problem, there's there's always the question of rationality. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's something very important within my work is to sort of show that you can have quite high and quite serious mental health problems and yet still perform what would be considered rational mm -hmm. planning behaviours for an attack. It doesn't impede an individual in that sense. It may impede in certain aspects of their life, their social life, their um, their physical life at home, but it doesn't necessarily in all cases impede their ability to plan and conduct a, a successful terrorist attack. And linked to this, actually, one of the, the things that always hits home to me with your research, the research that you've published uh, with Paul on these issues, is that you both of you are constantly saying... Uh, just because there is the presence of a mental illness doesn't mean that, that the presence of it is causing their involvement yeah. in terrorism. I think that's, that's one of the most important take-home messages. And sometimes, even no matter how many times you emphasize this, people take it up the wrong way and uh, look at your research in, in yeah, I think, ways you didn't intend. I think there's always, a, there's always a temptation to just take home 
the abstract when it doesn't and it's only when you read actually what the research says further on that you you can see what it actually says um and i mean i've I've worked on a lot of data sets Mm. and i've done a fair amount of research in this area and i have never ever ever found evidence of a direct causal link Mm -hmm. between um you know evidence of being diagnosed with mental health problems or having a say for instance a psychotic break or or a or a um or a uh, mental health crisis and it moving straight towards an individual conducting an attack there's always mitigating factors mm-hmm. around both elements of of that and this actually it it's it brings to mind for me one of the sentences i can't remember which paper of yours it was on it was the shortest sentence in any article i've ever read but i think it was it sums up your publications it was that specificity matters that being specific about what exactly your findings are being specific about these mental disorders that you're talking Mm -hmm. about that matters it's not just good enough to have it as a dichotomous variable it's uh you need to be as specific as possible to understand and this comes into play um when we move outside of academia and when we look into risk assessment and one of the other um pieces that uh, you've picked is uh, it's not a piece from the terrorism studies literature. It's from the risk assessment literature. It's by uh, John Monaghan and colleagues, published in 2001, titled Rethinking Risk Assessment, the MacArthur Study of Mental Disorder and Violence. So what was it uh, about this, uh, this huge volume that, uh, that, really, um, that really influenced you? So I think what I took, and like you said, it's, it's, it's a lot of studies all, mm. all put into one, and what I actually, the, the main... The reason that this has inspired the work, the work that I, the work that I do, is because the the team that that wrote these pieces actually are very very specific in saying it's not just mental illness; it's not causal. There are so many other mitigating factors, and it's it doesn't crime and violence does not occur in a vacuum. Mm. Um, and so, for me, the reason that I take that work. And I, and I try to sort of follow the same ethos is is because they're very specific. They they examine different disorders. They examine um, and they examine violence, but they examine different types of violence. They examine different types of aggression. They examine um, different settings and over time. And they're very very rigorous in, in the work that they did. And so the the field of um, mental disorder and crime and violence it's sort of it's almost like 40 years ahead of what terrorism studies is in concerns with um, mental health problems in terrorism in that if you look back in the 1970s at the work of mental disorder and crime it mirrors what the terrorism studies field looks like today very dichotomous very aggregate it, it was trying to identify causal links um, just between mental disorder and, and behavior and and then over time, it, it's moved away from that. And um, it's only with the work of um, researchers such as um, John Monaghan and colleagues that actually it's it, the field has come a, a long way in quite a short period of time. And I I think that if, you, if academics in the field of terrorism studies can sort of almost look at what the crime and violence literature has done and sort of apply 
that the current thinking in crime and violence to what we see in terrorism studies, I think we could probably move forward quite a bit faster than we are doing, specifically with mental health problems, because there's been a lot of contention over the issues over the last 40 years. Yeah. And when you were describing that piece there, you mentioned that different types of violence. Mm. Whereas when we're talking about the dichotomous variable of mel- mental illness, whether it's whether it's present or not, mm. you could talk about terrorist violence being a dichotomous variable mm. as well. You're either involved in terrorist violence or not, but there are a variety of types of terrorist violence as well. So how does something like that, how can we we utilize this to try and understand this? Or do you feel that there are different uh, factors playing into different types of terrorist violence? So I think and it's not just terrorist violence, it's being involved in terrorism because there's many, many um, roles and mm. there's uh, different ways people involve themselves in terrorism. And I think what the terrorism studies field can do and what the, the rethinking risk assessment piece did, which was very simple, was they just recategorized um, variables. So instead of having one variable for violence, they more closely examined what violence was and broke it out into seven or eight different variables. So for the terrorism studies field, it's, so it's quite easy to take a dichotomous variable and research it quite well and be very stringent on how you're researching and, and break one variable into seven or eight different ones to see you know, if it's more if, if it's more useful to think of um, behaviour in that sort of way. So, for instance, what I did with the false dichotomy pieces, I took mental illness as a t- dichotomous variable and broke it down into 12 different disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if the, of course, that reduces the size of your N, but then if we're gathering more and more data, um, then that shouldn't impede the results too too much so it's a detriment yeah and you should be honest about what the data what these data are saying as well yeah so moving on from that then you've got uh rethinking risk assessment you've got bombing alone um and then you've got the piece by jeff victoroff in 2005 now with you picking this piece i can see paul's influence already because paul picked the exact same piece for his his interview as well um and i can understand why both of you have picked it so what was it about uh, Victor's piece, The Mind of the Terrorist, published 12 years ago? Then. So that was the piece. So when I, I completed that one lecture in my undergrad, that was the required reading. Ah, very good. Um, and then when I started my master's dissertation, that was the one piece that Paul told me to look at and sort of extrapolate out mm-hmm. from that. Um, so it kind of came back to haunt me three years after I'd managed to get rid of it the first time. I think, and it, it, so that is one of six very important um, reviews that were conducted. Um, So uh, Andrew Silk um, did two, John Horgan did two, um, Jeff Hitchroff and Randy Boren was another one. So they were, there were six very, very important pieces. And that's my favorite one, just because I think that not only is it longer, so it goes into much more, in-depth um, uh, reviewing, but actually it focuses really deeply in on different psychological theories that have gone and, and different research that has gone in into um, the field of terrorism studies. Um, and in particular, it, it's, it, I found it useful when I first started in this field because it, it specifically talks about psychopathology and mental disorders, mm. 
whereas the other pieces are they it's mentioned but it's not specifically examined in terms of diagnostics which is what that piece does which is what i think was what drew me to it in the first place and so what were the what were the core lessons that you you taught from this obviously i can see in relation to uh victor's discussion about the heterogeneity of terrorists for example that you can you can see this throughout your work throughout the three pieces that that you you've picked for today but what else was it that you that you you took from this um i think what also i took from it was that I mean, it's 40 pages long and the amount of different theories that he covers, it astounded me that there were that many theories and there were that, and, and none of, some theories meshed together, others were completely separate and I found that very, very interesting. Um, but there is a particular um, piece that he covers in quite a lot of depth, with which the other the other five um, reviews do mention, but he covers it quite deeply as the, uh, the German study from the Ministry of Interior, the... The, um, in the 1980s um, and I found that study fascinating and I tried to read it and it's in German um, so I've How's only your German? not very good <laughs> okay. so um, I've only ever managed to find the reviews of it and um, so for me it was the reaction to the German study the way that the impact it had on the field when actually when you look deeply into what was done and actually the limitations of that study it was quite worrying that the field grabbed hold of it because it was a, one of the first studies where people were actually interviewing terrorists to examine their, their psychological makeup and it was grabbed hold of and it's still cited today as mm-hmm. very valid and actually when you look at it, yes, it's valid and it was very relevant at the time but there were lots of problems that aren't re, re, um, repeated um, over the literature what were these problems? So it's it's put out as a study. So the the researchers went into prisons to interview um, terrorists, um, left-wing mm-hmm. um, terrorists. And, um, and one of the problems was a lot of the people who were approached to be interviewed didn't want to be interviewed mm-hmm. because it was a study funded by the German ministry, so they didn't trust the government. Um, a lot of the individuals, so the individuals interviewed before trial, so were they convicted or were they just imprisoned in a mass arrest mm-hmm. and then actually found that they weren't responsible and released and yet some of these people may have made into the data set. Um, there was a lot of, um, because they were conducted by different members of the research team, not all the members agreed with some of the results that were found. So for me, it was a, it's a very outstanding piece of research in that it somehow managed to to stay over time whereas without being more critically analyzed and I think the field can only improve with critical analysis and it should be welcomed in the field it shouldn't be um, shied away from and it might be because of translation problems because it's four volumes in German as opposed to a, a small article of you know say 20 or 30 pages and so some of the issues you're raising there um relate to ethics of terrorism researchers Mm -hmm. why why are why is ethics so important some would say oh well why should we bother with ethics it's holding back research of course we should bother with ethics i i agree with you but (laughs) interested in your opinion um 
I think at the end of the day, you're dealing with human behavior. So therefore, it's human beings. So therefore, it doesn't matter what anyone's done. They're still a human being. Um, and quite a big proportion of some of my research has been reading um, autobiographical accounts. And when you read the accounts, and I've been coding them, and when you go through them, it completely humanizes the behavior. So you, in some cases, you don't agree with it, and you never agree with it but you follow the pathway of their life and you see what's happened to them and you can empathise with some of the decisions they made before they decided to turn to violence. So I think ethics are massively important because yeah. if you're performing interviews or you're examining people, you don't ever want to do harm. Mm. Um, to date, the majority of my research has been based on open source information anyway. Um, and I have performed a, a small number of interviews um, but the majority of my research has been open source at um, post hoc and post hoc. Um, so for me, the concerns of ethics has never, well, it's not been at the forefront of when I've been performing research until I perform the interviews. Mm. But yes, it's very important. Yeah. But and <laughs> as you said, though, it's it should be part of our critical analysis. Yes. For ex the example that you raised there of interviewing people uh, before trial, where you're not sure are they convicted, they're they're charged. Some of them mightn't even mm. be charged at this stage. Um, and you're saying they're human beings. It it we should treat them as as human beings, no matter what they've done, or no matter what we've presumed that mm. they've done as well. Um, and this is this is a it's a huge lesson for for terrorism academics uh, mm. to take. Um, and it's something that I know there's been a discussion going on that we need to be uh, we need to be stronger on research ethics or in our discussion of research ethics, at least. But the point you were raising there, the core point before I am, um, before I stumped you for a second with that ethics question, <laughs> was that we need to be critically analyzing yeah. the literature that's gone before. And this really holds up in, uh, comes through in your uh, recent, most recent publication that we're going to focus on, which is called There and Back Again, the study of mental disorder and terrorist involvement, where this, this is really critically analyzing all the stages of our, of research, all the phases of research into into this questioning if there is a relationship between mental disorder and terrorist involvement. So how did you, how did yourself and Paul frame this? And what, what were your, what were, are the key takeaway points from this? So it was framed in a sort of, essentially a, a chronological fashion. Mm -hmm. um, in the, the piece started um, within the very earliest pieces of research specifically focusing on mental disorder um, and terrorism within the 1970s and moving forward and seeing um, how have there been improvements? What have the improvements been? Have the improvements been linear? Not only in the understanding, but also in the research designs and the way that researchers have examined um, mental health and terrorism. And it, it, it's not linear. It, it hasn't been linear. And... Um, even though the, the research fields have been quite discreet in over time. So, for instance, you start with psycho, psycho, psychopathy in 1970s, the 1980s up to the 2000s, predominantly um, focused on um, aspects of psychoanalysis. And then you've got a slight overlap with um, 
the reviews that I mentioned before, the six reviews, and then after 9-11, there was this huge boom um, within the terrorism fields. And so even though over time it looks like discrete categories, there was the improvements and, and the backtracking in, in the quality of the research wasn't linear in any way. Um, this piece is, I think, it's my favourite one of the three I've given today, and I think it's it's the most important piece for why I'm doing the research that I'm doing. Um, for me, anyway, I don't know what Paul thinks about it, um, because it is about critically analysing the field and, and giving credit where it's due and actually saying that it's not enough to be stagnant and to stand still and there's still improvements to be made. Um, and part of the reason for doing this for me was because it takes back to the undergrad lecture that I did was there's, it, it, the research field had gone quiet in the state of um, concerning mental health and terrorism because there was just this agreement that it didn't really matter and it wasn't really there. Um, and then actually when you look into what this agreement was, it wasn't an agreement, it was miscitations um, that happened to coincide with a huge boom in the, in the field of terrorism studies after 9-11. And actually the fact that this thought propagated and is now common knowledge, as people call it, that there's, there's no link between mental health and terrorism, um, or is all due to miscitations, which I think the field needs to stop and really think about that because when you're writing research you have to be extremely careful in because if you're misciting are you misreading in the first place um so i think there needs to be a a good healthy dose of criticism when it comes to the the the, the misinterpretation of what was actually not said in the first place so the 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 miscitations of the of the six reviews. All of the reviews were conducted by psychologists who were all very even-handed and nuanced and said um, there isn't really a distinction um, in terms of mental health problems between terrorists and the general population. But because they used the word normal, that was misconstrued to mean, oh, there's no 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 terrorists have mental health problems, which isn't actually true because in any population. Um, for any disorder, you're looking at between 20 and 30% prevalence of mental health problems. So a normal person has that much chance of developing something throughout their lifetime. So I think you have to be very careful when you're reading these things. And and the fact that it was, I mean, these, these, these reviews have got over 2,000 citations now. And it's like, well, if 2,000 citations of each misinterpreted, that just propagates a problem. Um and then when I put out, when I published False Dichotomy, it had a very good reception and people saying, well, this is new, this hasn't been seen before. We didn't expect this. And it's like, well, actually, if the miscitations had never happened, it shouldn't be unexpected. That my, The False Dichotomy shouldn't have been unexpected because it would never have been there if people had just read the reviews properly. <laughs> and this is actually... Um housed in a special issue by one of the authors of of the reviews it's housed in a special issue by john horgan mm -hmm. um and he 
I'm sure he clearly was as frustrated as both of both of you are with this misinterpretation of what himself and Andrew and Randy and others were saying uh, yeah. in their reviews as well. One of the things that um, that uh, rings true from this uh, this review and from all of your research here is this difference between uh, lone actor terrorists and, and, and group terrorists and and this is something that you emphasize in this in in your review of uh, what you called it and in your description of the four paradigms and how we can focus now with the data uh, with these data mm. that yourself and Paul have and Jeff Greenwald and others mm. as well um, is that we can make this different uh, can look at this difference here um, do you find that this piece has been misinterpreted to say when you're in when you're referencing what's prevalent in lone actor terrorists versus group uh, terrorists do you, has have you seen any misinterpretation so far of, of your own review of this or, one. Uh, or any of them um so far that only came out this year so yeah. it's not really been cited mm. there's been a few miscitations of false dichotomy mm. um and again it comes with a a lack of care of reading actually what it says um but it hasn't been towards group and lone actors because that's very explicit even in the abstract that's <laughs> even in the title yes it's very explicit yeah. um um but i i have seen some um miscitations of the false dichotomy mm-hmm. um piece um but i think with there's a lot there's a lot of interest um, that's been coming out over the last few years, certainly with um, with the interest within individuals inspired by uh, Daesh. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly a lot of media interest in the potential link between mental health and terrorism. So I think since that has been pro- has been quite popular in in popular culture, mm-hmm. these miscitations appear to have not been happening as much so it might be because it's something that is more obvious in the in the media but then the careful reading maybe is caught up on i don't know okay um have you seen in your research uh, in your analysis of this and other data sets have you seen say different prevalence of different uh, mental health disorders uh, across different ideologies or is there that different is there anything like that there i know a number of people might be wondering that so i, I performed a a very small analysis for a presentation that i i did um firm and i basically i, I compared uh, right-wing actors with uh, religiously inspired individuals and individuals with single issue ideology um, and so overall if you just look at mental health problems individuals with a single issue ideology have much higher prevalence like significantly different higher significantly higher prevalence rates than um, individuals um, with right wing or, mm-hmm. or religiously inspired and but actually when you break it down um, uh, levels of substance abuse are high within um, right wing actors mm-hmm. Um, whereas when and um, depression whereas you look at religiously inspired actors and there's more high levels of psychosis and whereas single issue um, you have all across the board it doesn't really matter they're just consistent and they're high they're still higher than the other two groups but what's 
particularly interesting with the right wing and the um, religiously inspired people is the different the distinction between the substance abuse and the um, uh, psychosis. Okay. No, it's and again, it's it's trying to find that specificity within the day within these data mm. as well. One of the things that uh, that came up that not everyone would automatically think of in relation to terrorist involvement and links with mental health is a discussion about PTSD. Mm. Um, what what did you find in relation to PTSD in your in your analysis? So it's not in any of these papers. No. Um, it's it's in. Um, it's briefly mentioned. It's in very briefly there mentioned. Back, yeah. So it's um. So it's it was um a, the last chapter of my um, PhD thesis, mm. and the reason I'm interested in that is so PTSD has long been recognised as very highly prevalent in military mm. um, veterans and 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 those sorts of populations, and for me, the my own theory was well, a lot after reading the autobiographies and coding them more than likely the individuals involved see themselves as part of a, a military entity. So just because they're not seen as legitimate by the state, does that mean that they're not going to suffer the same consequences, um, psychological consequences? Um, so this is what I examined um, as what happens to these individuals after disengagement. Mm-hmm. Um, and what led me to be able to, to research that is some of the work coming out of Northern Ireland, um, specifically a couple of charities out there and and some of the work examining um, not just outward signs of PTSD and other mental health problems, but social care problems. Mm-hmm. So individuals coming out of prison, not able to hold down a job, um, serious issues with substance use, um, problems with not having family support and um, a support network and actually what appears to be quite quite a big problem with a, a large population of individuals that that now have do not have a social network that is able to support them um which mirrors what happens with a lot of military veterans certainly after a lot of people came back from vietnam there was this disconnect between um well we have all these returnees and what do we do with them and this seems to be mirroring what is happening in certain parts of Northern Ireland. Um, so I really wanted to research that. So and um, so what I, I did with the um, autobiographical data was examined um, what happens to individuals when they're involved and if is it things that happen during their involvement that actually um, lead to the, the, the psychological and social problems afterwards or is it the active disengaging and not having the support network that they had within a group Um, or is it coming out and their family's gone because they've lost familial connections between because they were so closely connected to the group and what the research that I I did on it the analysis that I did um, actually showed it there was no difference in um, the experiences of the individuals within groups so there was no difference in the experience of violence or, or, or being victimized. Um, the actual difference came was with how the individuals coped with it. So how, what was their coping mechanism? So with individuals who did um, suffer uh, psychological 
problems during disengagement, it was they didn't have coping mechanisms so that would allow them to move on. Mm-hmm. So they would turn to substance use or they wouldn't take on any care offered to them. Um, they wouldn't they wouldn't actually actively keep... So they still had their ideology in a lot of cases. A lot of cases, individuals were still what we would term as radicalised when they disengaged. But they didn't turn that into moving in towards legal politics. So, for instance, in the group that didn't report any any um, mental health problems when they disengaged. When they disengaged, they'd move into legal politics. So they'd keep the momentum going, but in a legal fashion. Um, they'd seek help um, and they, they wouldn't move towards negative coping strategies. So it wasn't the experiences, it was how they coped when they came out. So I think that was quite an interesting way of looking at it because that also showed that it's not enough to just have behaviours and variables on an output if you don't interpret how they interact with each other. So it's not just the case of, well, this person um, did go into politics and this person didn't. It's, well, why didn't this person? What was happening around them at the same time? Which is another... So the next set of research that I'm that I'm going to publish is all about sequencing the behaviours. So it's not just the behaviours in isolation, it's how they interact with each other. And this is this is vitally important if we're looking at um, a post-conflict uh, society, if we're looking at somewhere like Northern Ireland with an elongated um, conflict process, mm. uh, that we would be able to help and understand what's happened to people afterwards. So yeah, it's, it's something that, like, when you look at what we are trying to achieve um, as researchers looking at all aspects of terrorism and terrorism, terrorism involvement, whether it's from a psychological point of view or otherwise, what we're trying to do is understand. And what we're trying to understand how, how this can affect individuals, how it can affect societies, how it can affect victims as well as uh, perpetrators. And with, with this understanding, through a broad through a broad range of questions that we will be able to make progress, whether it's as a as terrorists are active in an elongated conflict or in the aftermath of a conflict as well. Um, and one of the ways as the the theme of the of this interview has been about specificity, one of the ways that we can get this understanding is through being as specific as possible and about being as open about our research as possible. And showing people, look, this is what we're finding. And this is something yourself and Paul have done um, across the research that you've published together. Um, and one of the, the, the final pieces that we'll focus on is something that you don't really see in terrorism studies as much, or in a number of areas, is the publication of a research note. It's putting a research note out there, look, this is where we are with this at the moment. Um, and that's the final piece, Mental Disorders and the Terrorist, a research note probing selection effects and disorder prevalence, which you did with with Paul Gill again and Oliver Mason this time. So what was contained within this and, um, and where? what do you think are the key lessons that we can learn from this piece? So I'm going to be honest, I didn't know what a research note was until Paul sent me an email and said, do you want to do this as a research note? Yeah. Um, and he said, basically, just don't write a lot um, because I tend to write 
a heck of a lot and he spends a lot of time hacking away at it. <laughs> um, so this, the introduction to the research note um, gives a very quick overview of what we cover in a lot more detail in the There and Back Again. Mm -hmm. It's a very quick introduction um, to the state of the field in terms of mental health problems and terrorism. And then what we move to do is um, we disaggregate lone and group actors further to um, look at lone actors, solo actors, uh, dyads, and group actors, and measure the prevalence rates of overall mental health problems within um, these individuals. Um, and the results show that the more lonely a person is, the higher prevalence rate of mental health problems. Um, so then actually, I then um, said to Paul Walt, can we put in um, the prevalence rates of different disorders mm -hmm. across the different terrorist types? So it then contains um, the results um, of prevalence rates of specific disorders and the disorder groups, um, which expands on the false dichotomy piece in a way that it sort of visualizes um, what I meant when I broke up the disorder groups mm -hmm. in that piece. Um, and what we also do is show the general population prevalence um, for the disorders as well. So it's it's not enough to talk about the different rates of disorders in terrorists if we don't map what that would look like in an ordinary population. Um, because if they're the same as a general population, is it interesting? Is it important? Is it something we should be examining? Um, but but there are specific disorder groups that are higher within um, certainly the lone terrorists that aren't within a general population. And these are the psychotic disorders and the autism spectrum disorders, um, which sort of show that there's something about um, these disorder groups that we need to examine further um, in terrorist behavior. And when you're in this piece, you talk about the lone actor as, as much of your research is looked at, but you also refer to someone called the solo actor. What's the difference between a lone actor and solo actor? Uh, so the, the lone actor is an individual who um, conceives and plans and carries out an attack on their own predominantly. So they may have contact with other people and they may have told other people um, their grievance or their intent. Um, but the planning is and the carrying out the attack is of their own um, volition. Whereas with a solo actor, these are individuals who may have been part of a group and the group directed them, told basically, um, in some cases gave them a weapon and said, go do an attack, you have autonomy over what you do. Um, or they may be individuals that were part of a group and the group helped them in other ways so they didn't give them the weapon or what they said do an attack but we'll provide training mm -hmm. um so this, this that's the distinction is that the actual attack was carried out on their own but the links to the group are what makes them different um do we see um do we see a significant difference here in relation to the prevalence of mental health disorder between these two categories so it's not a significant difference in terms of over all of the categories but it's quite a jump mm -hmm. so we drop from well, like, 40% to about 20. Okay. So it's, it's quite a big jump. Mm -hmm. Now this paper was conducted, um, well the research was done in uh, 2015. Mm -hmm. And when 
um, recently published a paper in the CTC, CTC Sentinel that focused purely on individuals either directed by or inspired by Daesh. And it's a different beast in terms of the, the type of direction that um, Daesh are telling individuals. So it sort of changes what we're looking at. Um, so it, um, these results in the research note are still relevant. Mm -hmm. It's just when you add in the aspect of the individuals that have got have the attacks since, it might change the direction ever so slightly. Um, what's the differences? What do you mean? We're, we're, you say it's a different beast uh, so, in relation to what's happening. So in the CTC Sentinel um, piece, um, the levels of mental health problems, if you look at inspired and directed, so the lone and the solos, um, were no higher than a general population. But then when you take out the directed, it peaks. Okay. Um, so it might be that the directed are less in this in this cohort in the Daesh cohort. It might be that it's not twenty percent. It's it's what you wouldn't expect in other databases of group actor terrorists, it, rather than previous solo terrorists that have gone previously. And throughout all of this discussion and throughout all of your research, you're focusing on politically motivated terrorist actors mm. and we're looking at the uh, at the role or or lack thereof of mental health in relation to um, their offending to their in mm. relation to their violence or their engagement with uh, with these groups or these processes um, is this reflective of uh, going back again to uh, Monaghan's work is this reflective and to other uh, criminologist and forensic psychologist is this reflective of other groups such as high school shooters or anyone like that or is where where are there are there any differences there um so high school shooters or mass murderers mm. or workplace shooters um they're often that's often the first thing that is mentioned about them is oh they have mental health problems so I was on part of a project with uh, John Horgan, Paul Gell, um, Jim Silver, and uh, Noemi Bohanna, um, funded by the National Institute of Justice, where we performed a comparison of politically motivated loan actors and, and non-politically motivated mass murderers. Um, and the outcomes of this project, I think when we started out, weren't as clean cut as we thought. Like we, the categorization of loan actors to mass murderers in some cases was quite difficult um so um within the cohort of loan actors there's quite high levels of what is termed single issue ideology so individuals that have a personalized grievance that they attach to a political ideology and a political aim and there were cases within the mass murder data that could be perceived as having this single issue ideology um so that raised questions of when are they a loan actor, when are they a mass murderer? Um, but when we examined, when I examined the levels of mental health problems, the difference wasn't in the overall rates of mental health problems because there was, mass murderers had higher, but not significantly higher. But the difference was in the types of disorders. Mm -hmm. So again, looking back to moving away from dichotomizing variables, if we'd have just examined mental health problems, yes or no, 
then we'd have gone, oh, they're not really that different. But actually, when you looked at the different disorder rates, they are different. Um, so lone actors are much likely to more much more likely to have psychotic disorders. Um, whereas if you look at um, mass murderers, there's much higher levels of substance abuse and, and depression. So again, it's back in, back to specificity matters. It, it's you've got to examine deeper and you've got to disaggregate more to actually uncover differences and uncover um, potential links between behaviours or potential sources of information that will move you forward towards the next piece of research. And so we're, we're coming towards the end of the, the interview um, and you say, and all of your, um, your research that we've discussed is giving advice on how we should move forward. It's we need uh, to move away from the dichotomous variables, for example. We, specificity specificity uh, matters as the key, um, the key message throughout these three pieces. So when we do move forward, outside of what you said uh, in these pieces, what do you think the core, um, the core issues we should be focusing on are? What do you think uh, are the core lessons that we have to take? And what way can we... Oh, what I want to, to find is what way can we do our research better outside of what you've recommended here? Um, I think the specificity question matters no matter what you're examining. Um, so, like I said before, there are lots of different roles. So you could, being a bomb maker is not the same as being a gun runner, is not the same as being a financier. So, and being a leader of a group is not the same as being a sympathizer, is not the same as being a follower. So I think the specificity question could be extrapolated across the field of terrorism. I think that's something that's very, very important. Um, one of the one of the things that frustrates me about the research that I've done is it's all been based on open source information. And I, I've done interviews, but not that have been published um, yet. Um, so I think acts like actually moving to look at first-hand information is a very, very important move forward as well. Um, because there are lots of assumptions out there that, could be disproven or could be proved depending on if you actually speak to someone that's been involved. I don't think I don't think open source information allows you to to do that. I mean it has great merits to it and I, I many databases that I've worked on are from open source data and I will support it hundred percent but I think there needs to be supplementary information from first hand accounts. Um, I think people Overall, I think the big problem that I've always found with the, certainly with the research I've looked at is the miscitations and misinterpretations. And I think just reading a bit more carefully yeah. <laughs> might help. Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's a great lesson. It's, it, they, these are great lessons that we should all listen to, that we should all take on board. Um, and your work uh, with Paul as a... As you, as you can tell from, from our discussions, I admire it a lot. But what it mightn't be clear from people reading it is you've just finished your PhD, you've just completed. 
what advice would you give to someone? And I hope there are some, I hope there's anyone listening to this, but I hope there are some people who are in the process of doing their PhDs at the moment who are listening to this. As someone who's just fresh out of doing a PhD, what's, what advice would you give to complete the, to survive, to... Um, I had a really nice time on mine, so I can't, I'm not very... I mean, the write-up's horrible, um, but you can't avoid that. I just think if... I mean, I really enjoyed the subject. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm hugely passionate about it and hugely passionate. Um, so for me, I I enjoyed the research and I enjoyed writing and I enjoyed discovering and learning. So I think if you're going to do a PhD, you've got to really love it. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I, I've seen a lot of people who liked the subject that they chose but didn't love it and then you know you lose heart if you don't love it because it's it's a long time to be researching the same thing um i i didn't want to finish mine i felt like i could have gone on forever um but that's because of that to me it's having that drive to do it and i think i i chose a subject that could go on for a long time mm -hmm. So, but yeah, just write up as you go along is probably the best information yeah. that I could was give. It, <laughs> was, was, was it tricky doing this kind of research at a time where there was, where there were a number of new attacks taking place um, by lone actor terrorists? Um, was it tricky to bring that on board and bring that in or to say, no, I have to stop collecting data at some stage. I have to, I have to finish this up. Yeah, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept gathering the data. Um, I think so. We the um, the loan actor data set that I actually put forward with my PhD, we'd been gathering extra ca extra cases um, through a different project. Mm -hmm. So um, we were and we were gathering cases right up until two weeks before I handed in. Wow. So I just. Just give me all the data. I'm quite happy with that. I'm a bit of a data freak. I'll take it all. <laughs> and and any, any advice when it comes to the Viva itself? I'm, I'm sure this has been worse than the Viva. Now. Yeah, it <laughs> has actually. It has, yeah. Um, it's not as scary as you think it's going to be. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's a, it's a opportunity to sit down with people yeah. to talk about your own research yeah. and you don't get many opportunities. No, like no, you don't. It's um, privilege. In a way. It is. Yeah. And just make sure you pit your examine as well. Yeah. That was what, that's the only thing I'd say is pit your examine as well and pick them well in advance. Mm -hmm. Um, cause you've got a nice one yeah. or two. Yeah. <laughs> the main aim of it is to, to get through it, I suppose. And if you yeah. pick an examiner who you're highly critical of, it's, uh, it might be true. Yeah, I was I was nice about mine and my PhD, so they were both very good. That's always good. Well, Emily, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much. No, for, thank you for, for having coming. me. Um, anyone who wants to find out about 
any of the research that was discussed on today's podcast, go on to the website uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. There are links to all of the pieces that Emily has written, as well as the three pieces that uh, we discussed that influenced her work. Um, and I'm sure you'll follow the rest of her work with great interest. Also follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and tweet at us with the hashtag Talking Terror. Uh, thank you once again to Emily and thank you to Jamie Murray for editing today's episode as always. And uh, we'll chat to you all again soon. Okay, thanks. Bye. I hope that you enjoyed today's chat with Emily. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to Professor Jorge Lasmar of Pucmenes, Brazil about his research into terrorism from an international law perspective and counter-terrorism in Brazil. Until then, goodbye.